All right, good morning, guys. All right, I want to take a moment here, and uh, let's uh, let's think about this question here. Oh, there we go. Oh. Uh, uh, have you ever had a punishment that fit your crime just perfectly? Like, uh, like you did something and your parents gave you this kind of consequence that was just like beautifully and amazingly crafted to fit what you did? Have you ever had one of those? No? Okay. Well, uh, I'll give you guys an example of some that I had when I was a kid. For one, if we ever uh, talked back to our parents or... Uh, used words to hurt someone, we got a spoonful of Tabasco sauce. And a spoonful of Tabasco. And it was this idea that if we're going to use our tongues to hurt other people, then our tongues are going to get a hurt of their own. And uh, I tell you what, that was a lesson that I learned. And to this day, I can't eat Tabasco sauce because I feel like I'm being punished. <laughs> uh, but, but we had that. Or uh, my friend's parents, a brilliant one. If they slammed their doors, they took the doors off and put it in the garage. And it was this idea that if you're going to abuse and misuse the door that gives you privacy into your room by slamming it, that's fine. But you don't get a door. You don't get the privacy that it gives. Uh, they didn't have a whole lot of slammed doors in their house. Uh, or uh, repayment. I remember one time when I was, I think I was like nine, my sister got a Walkman for, uh, for I think it was her birthday or Christmas, and I thought that it would be a great idea to take the Walkman apart and see how it worked and put it back together, because I was pretty good at taking things apart and putting it back together. Well, I tell you what, I took that thing apart like a champ. I mean, it was no time flat. I was like playing with a motor and a battery, like, oh, this is so cool. Putting it back together did not happen. And so, repayment of that Walkman. I tell you what, 40 bucks is not easy for an 8-year-old or 9-year-old to put together. Uh, but these kind of consequences, they really fit the crime. It's what you've done, and here now, what the, the consequence that we're given really fits it. And it makes us think about what we've done in a helpful way. I think that when God gives consequences a lot of times they are actually very well crafted to fit the crime. And I'll show you what I mean. We're going to be looking today at Isaiah chapter 19. Uh, and in chapter 19 of Isaiah, he's giving his judgments to Egypt. And I think that his punishments fit their crimes. In order to understand that, though, we've got to have kind of some idea of who Egypt is. And as we go through the biblical story, we learn quite a few things about Egypt— who they are, what they're like, and we learn lots of different things about them. So what are some of the things we know about Egypt from the biblical story? They oppressed the Israelites. That's probably the thing we know most about them. They're these evil oppressors. We know that they're idolaters. As we come into the, the book of Exodus, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says that Yahweh says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is, I don't know Yahweh, and I won't let your people go. He doesn't know him. In fact, uh, the, the book of Exodus repeats over and over, so that you may know that I am Yahweh. You don't know me, but 
All of these things are so that you can know who I am. So they're idolaters. They don't believe in Yahweh, and they don't want to. They don't care. Even though God reveals himself, they don't want to know him. They are the evil oppressors of God's people. They held Israel under their thumb for hundreds of years, mistreating them, putting them through hard and harsh treatment and labor. They are their slavers. Image of self-sufficiency. As we look through the text, they always have it made in the shade, even though there's not a whole lot of shade. But they have it made. I mean, I think that they would probably have taken the name Cush if it wasn't taken already, because they had a pretty Cush life. I mean, it was like this place where they had everything. And as we look through the biblical story, not only are they this like arrogant and self-sufficient, but they are this monstrous military, political, and economical superpower. In fact, when Israel and Judah get themselves in trouble and they don't want to go to Yahweh, who do they go to? They go to the biggest, baddest bully on the block, and it's Egypt. Because they want Egypt to bail them out of their problems. Because they are these self-sufficient, big superpowers. Well, God has some consequences for them, and he's going to start talking about them in Isaiah chapter 19. Let's take a look at this here. It's a prophecy against Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him, and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian, brother will fight against brother, neighbor against neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. So right off the bat, God starts with his first judgment, and what he says he's going to do is he will terrify their gods. And that really should sound pretty familiar to us, because when we look in Exodus 12, when God is talking about the, the plagues that he's brought on Egypt, and particularly the final plague, he says that this was not just brought as a judgment upon the people of Egypt, but it's a judgment on their gods as well. That God has judged the idols, the demons that the Israelites serve. It's like he's saying, you want to trust in these idols? Okay, let them save you. See how that works out for you. And at the mere thought that Yahweh is coming for them, these idols, these gods tremble in fear. They are terrified because the Egyptians might not know who Yahweh is, but these false gods definitely do. And it's terrifying. So their first, or their first consequence is that he will terrify their gods. He goes on though. He says, The Egyptians will lose heart. And I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead, the mediums and the spiritists. I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Again, this probably should sound familiar to us because it harkens back to Exodus chapter 1, where it says in Exodus chapter 1 that they— the Egyptians, made the lives of the Israelites bitter with harsh labor, brick and mortar, and all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. 
they are the evil oppressors who have enslaved and mistreated and abused God's people. And so he says, okay, then here's your consequence. You are going to get a little taster of what that feels like. You have given this out for hundreds and hundreds of years. You're going to get a sample. You are going to have a harsh master put over you. Then we'll see how that goes. But he's got more. It says that the waters of the river will dry up, and the riverbed will be parched and dry. The canals will stink. The streams of Egypt will dwindle and dry up. The reeds and rushes will wither. Also, all, also the plants along the Nile at the mouth of the river. Every sown field along the Nile will become parched, will blow away and be no more. The fishermen will groan and lament. All who cast hooks into the Nile, those who throw nets on the water will pine away. Those who work with combed flax will despair. The weavers of fine linen lose hope. The workers of cloth will be dejected and all the wage earners will be sick at heart. And so God will take their self-sufficiency away. And how does he do that? He says, I'm going to take away the Nile. I'm going to dry up their river. Now guys, just to think about this for a moment, the Nile is one of the most stable rivers in the entire world. It's kind of like God saying, I'm going to dry up the Columbia. The Nile doesn't put out that volume of water that the Columbia does, but it is stable. It is reliable. It is always there. And so God is saying, I'm going to take your self-sufficiency away. Because if we look in Deuteronomy, we see that God talks about the Nile, about Egypt, as this place that has its self-sufficiency because of this river. It says that the land that you are entering, he's talking to the uh, Israelites as they're about to enter into Israel, the land you're entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. The land of Egypt was Cush, if only Cush wasn't taken already. But the land you are crossing into the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It's a land the Lord your God cares for, for the eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it, from the beginning of the year to its end. So God says to the Israelites, as they're about to enter Israel, look, when you were in Egypt, you had it made as far as planting crops. It was super easy. Because you guys had the river right there, you never had to worry about rain. Where you're going, you got no river. Guys, the Jordan River is tiny. It's kind of like the Sandy. It's not a big river, and that's the only one they got. So he's saying, you have to rely on me for rain. In Egypt, you didn't have to do that. Because you had the Nile. And so the Egyptians, they got the Nile. They don't have to rely on God for rain. Interestingly, they only get between like one and eight inches of rain annually. They get nothing. Can we get this? Uh, they get like no rain. And so God says, I'm going to dry up your river. And so then we'll see how you do self-sufficiency-wise. We'll see how those things go. Because guys, without the Nile, you got no crops, 
You got no fishing. You got no anything. It all dries up. And so if you think you're self-sufficient, if you think you don't have to rely on me for what you have, then figure it out without the river. Because guess what? I'm the one who gives you that. And he goes on. He says, The officials of Zoan are nothing but fools. The wise counselors of Pharaoh give senseless advice. How can you say to Pharaoh, I'm one of the wise men, a disciple of ancient kings? Where are your wise men now? Let them show you and make known what the Lord Almighty has planned against Egypt. The officials of Zoan have become fools. The leaders of Memphis are deceived. The cornerstones of her people have led Egypt astray. The Lord has poured into them a spirit of dizziness. They make Egypt stagger in all she does, as a drunkard staggers around in his vomit. There is nothing Egypt can do, head or tail, palm, palm branch, or reed. And so here, Yahweh's saying, I'm going to terrify your gods. I'm going to give you a harsh master. I'm going to take your self-sufficiency, and I'm going to make fools your officials. And guys, these all come back to the things, the sins that Egypt is most known for. They're known for their idolatry, and so Yahweh, fine. Let your gods save you. By the way, they're going to be terrified when I come. They're known for their oppression and their abuse of other people. Okay, you're going to get a taste of it. They're known for their self-sufficiency and their pride. Okay, you want to be self-sufficient? Figure it out without the river. Be self-sufficient. They want to be this big military and political and economical superpower? Okay, do it when your officials are a bunch of drunks. See how that goes for you when their wisdom is confounded. He takes all of those things away. And their punishments really fit the crime. But guys, one of the amazing things here in Isaiah 19 is that the punishment of God here, his judgment and his justice is not simply retributive. There's a much bigger picture to it that comes out really in the second half of this chapter. And we're going to see that. Check out, starting in verse 16. In that day, the Egyptians will become weaklings. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand of the Lord. Or the Lord Almighty raises against them. And the land of Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. And in that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the City of the Sun. Some of your Bibles might read the City of Destruction. Uh, there's just a slight change on one of those letters that might be either. I think the sun makes more sense here because we're talking about them swearing allegiance to God. This is a very positive passage. I don't think that's where he's going with it as far as destruction. So we have them swearing allegiance to God, being called the city of the sun. And in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day 
and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go down to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. And the Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Guys, this is some cool stuff because what we see that we're not just talking about in this passage. A lot of your Bibles, it'll just say like judgment of Egypt as kind of the heading. But guys, this is like not only a judgment against Egypt, this is a judgment for Egypt. What we have is both judgment in terms of punishment, but also judgment as blessing. I'll show you what I mean. Because he says that, I will save them when they turn to me. Guys, this is some cool stuff. Because check this out. He says in Isaiah 19, he says, When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. Which sounds an awful lot like Exodus 3, where God is commissioning Moses. And God says, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. He's going to rescue them when they call to him. And we're not just talking about Egypt or Israel here. We're talking about Egypt. And what else does he say? He says that I will make myself known to them. And this is some cool stuff because he says that the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And this is coming right after he says, when they call to me, I will send a deliverer. And in that day, they will know me. Which sounds so much like Exodus 7 where he says, I will take you to be my people. This is God talking to the Israelites. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out of under the burden of the Egyptians. So God talks to Israel in, in uh, Exodus 7, and he says, you will know that I am Yahweh your God, because I have saved you from your oppressors. And here in Isaiah 19, he says, the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh, when I save them from their oppressors. This is some cool stuff. And he goes on, he says, that I will be worshipped by them. Yahweh will be worshipped by the Egyptians. They will worship with sacrifice and offering. They will make vows and perform them. And again, in Exodus, every time God says, let my people go, he says, let my people go so that they may worship me. God saves Israel. He brings them out from under their oppressors so that they can come out and worship him. And now he's talking about saving Egypt when they turn to him, when they cry to him. And he will save them 
and they will worship him. This is some cool stuff. And also he's going to heal them when they repent. That he will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord and respond to their pleas and heal them. Which sounds like Isaiah 6, where Yahweh is saying that if only, if only these people would turn to me, then I would heal them. And he's talking there about Israel. But as we saw in chapter 1, it doesn't matter how much God does, Israel just won't turn. They just don't get it. But when he strikes Egypt, they will. They're going to get it. Really what we have is God saying that he's going to give Egypt the same family history that Israel has. They get an Exodus story of their own. That they are going to have this story that they can look to of how God has saved them from those who have oppressed them, from those who have hurt them and abused them. That they are going to be saved from the consequences of their sin when they cry out to God. And that is going to be their story of inclusion in God's people. It says, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. He will give them the same family history, and he's going to make them part of his people. That they are going to be an integral part of the people of God. This isn't two separate peoples of God here. Egypt, Assyria, Israel, these are all God's people together. So much so that they even share the same story. That no longer is the Exodus story just something that Israel has as their, uh, their heritage. It's something that even Egypt gets. It says that he will give them a full share in his blessing. Look at that. He says that I will make, they will be a blessing in the earth. And I will bless them, calling them my people. They get a blessing and they get to be a blessing. Guys, that's God's promise to Abraham. They get full share in that. And I think that this is partially where Paul is getting his theology about us as the church being the children of Abraham. This is amazing stuff. This is good news. And as we look at it, we look at this chapter, in the first part we see that Yahweh will judge Egypt for its sin. But I think that if we zoom out just a little bit, if you've been reading along with us, you've probably noticed that the last few chapters have been some pretty heavy reading. Because we get judgments against a lot of different nations here. We get judgments against Judah, against Babylon, against Cush, against Egypt, against Assyria. It's it almost feels kind of like that Oprah Winfrey moment of like, you get a judgment, you get a judgment, everybody gets a judgment. And I think that we're kind of meant to feel that way a little bit. 
Because I don't think that these things are meant just about or for the nations that are talked about. I think that the idea here is meant for us to see the whole world is getting judged. Everyone. And these nations that are mentioned, they're kind of place figures, so to speak. It's each country is mentioned to kind of hold up different kinds of sins that are being highlighted by them in particular. And each country is mentioned to just show the totality. Not just these people, not just these people, everyone. It goes all the way from Babylon and Assyria and Egypt to Israel and Judah. Doesn't matter who we are, we all stand under God's judgment. And then the second part shows us that Yahweh will forgive and bless Egypt when they turn to him. And again, just the same as with that first section, I don't think that this is talking just about Egypt. Remember, we're dealing with poetry. We're dealing with something that um, also contextually is talking about uh, more than just one nation. I think that what we're seeing here is him showing that if God will forgive and include Egypt, even Egypt, when they turn to him, he'll forgive anyone. Because guys, Egypt are like the biggest bad guys we can think of in scripture. These guys are, are they are like, honestly, they are kind of like what we think of when we think of slavers or Nazis. These are the bad guys. It's kind of like, a, it doesn't get much worse than them. If God can forgive even them when they turn to him, when they cry out to him, he can forgive anyone. And he will. And that's good news. As a whole, when we look at this passage, I think that what he's getting at is that Yahweh will judge the whole world for its sin, but he will forgive and bless all who turn to him. Everyone who turns to him. And that forgiveness of God is where we're going to focus today. Uh, not because the judgment of God is not important. It is very important for us to talk about. But Jordan really talked about that last week and did a great job looking at that. This week, we're going to talk a little bit more about Yahweh's forgiveness in this passage. And I think that one of the amazing things about God's forgiveness is that it draws us into repentance. And it does so not simply as a... Um, do this or get a consequence. Do this or get a punishment, though there is a level of that as well. But also, guys, if we read the second half of this passage, I think that his goodness and his love and his compassion draw us to repentance as well. As we see his forgiveness, as we see his justice and his righteousness, there's not only a level of fear for retribution, but a level of desire for his compassion and his love and his grace. A desire for inclusion in his people to receive the blessing that he longs to give to everyone. It draws us to repentance. Maybe right now, where you're at, 
is that you have not turned to God. And maybe this passage is drawing you to turn to God, to ask for his forgiveness, to become part of his people. Or maybe where you're at is that you're looking at it and the Holy Spirit is calling you to repent of some sin that you just haven't turned from yet. Guys, we turn to God not only because there's judgment upon sin, but because there's forgiveness, reconciliation, and there's inclusion in his family for those who turn to him. And that's good news. It's news that also comforts us. It comforts us to read this and know that no matter who we are, God can include and forgive us. No matter what we've done, he can include and forgive us. That is amazing news. I, uh, I one time had a student when I was teaching Bible study methods at Multnomah who uh, was taking the class online from Egypt. He was an Egyptian man who was taking the course. And as we were going through the book of Jonah, one of the things that just struck him and revolutionized his way of thinking was the fact that in the book of Jonah, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, are forgiven when they repent. And the Assyrians are the bad guys. And for him, that was amazing because he's, as an Egyptian man, had a hard time reading the Old Testament because for so long he felt like, my people are the bad guys. Oh man, I wish that I would have thought of this passage to talk with him about. Because guys, in this passage, what we're seeing is that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you come from. Because guys, he's got these words even for Israel and Judah. Everyone stands under his judgment, but everyone is drawn to forgiveness, is drawn to this opportunity to receive his forgiveness and his grace and his compassion. And this was a huge comfort to him, and it should be a comfort to us. Because, guys, we are the bad guys, we have all sinned. We have all done wrong and evil, and yet God offers forgiveness and grace belonging to each of us. And guys, his forgiveness gives us reason to celebrate. This is exciting stuff. This is not something that we should simply just be like, oh, that's cool. Oh, I feel good about that. Yeah. No, like, this is the kind of stuff that we should get excited about, that we should communicate to other people. Guys, we have the opportunity here after, uh, after I'm done talking, and we get to sing together. Guys, let's celebrate what God has done. Let's celebrate the fact that he has done everything, everything that needs to be done for us to be part of his family. Everything for us to be forgiven and made right with him everything for us to be able to experience his love and his justice, his hope and his peace. Guys, that is worth being excited about. It's worth being excited about in the way we talk to him 
And the way that we pray, the way that we sing, the way that we share him with other people, this is not something that we, we should just be, um, just be carriers of, but it should be something that we should infect other people with. Maybe not the best illustration as I think about it, given the climate. But guys, this is an amazing thing. And it's worth being excited about. And guys, his forgiveness calls us to forgive others. If we just think for a moment about how this idea would come across to the Israelites that Isaiah is talking to, they are hearing that the people who enslaved them, who abused them, who beat them, these people are being forgiven. These people need only to call out to God and God will forgive them? Are you joking me? That's the kind of forgiveness that God offers. And while it can be so amazing to us, so comforting to us, and so exciting and celebratory to us when we are the recipients, it can be really hard to swallow when it's being given to the people that have hurt us. But guys, this is the forgiveness of God. I have a piece that was written by Corey Tenboom. She said that it was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins are thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them to the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, walking his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath her parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He wouldn't remember me, of course. How could he? Remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him.
and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I couldn't. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow and terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but it seemed to me hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If we do not forgive their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it only as a command, not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had come from home in Holland and had a home for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter the physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion, and I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and the healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, my brother, with all of my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. God's forgiveness is for everyone who turns to him. And that is both good news and news that is hard to swallow. But God calls us to forgive even our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. I'm going to pray for us as we go out this morning. Father, we love you. And we are so grateful that you love us, that you want us to repent, to turn to you, to experience your forgiveness, your grace, your compassion, and your love, to be part of your family, and to experience your blessing. God, would you give us joy and comfort and excitement in that? And Lord, would you help us to be able to extend it to others, even when it's hard and even when it hurts? God, we thank you so much that you have brought Jesus, who has given us this news to give to the world, and God, that he has suffered on our behalf. We pray that we would celebrate it well and that we would proclaim it to the world who you are.
so that they can know you and worship you. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.